0: I felt as though um, society was down here, the general population, and I was up here in this in this bubble, yep. living different, different rules in a bipolar bubble. Mm. And for those people that understand bipolar, uh, for many, many years, I thought you guys had the problem, the world, and I was bulletproof. That's Heath
1: Black, a former AFL footballer who spent 12 years as a midfielder for the Dockers and the Saints. On paper, it sounds like every player's dream, but the reality is he struggled terribly with his mental health from the start, battling demons that eventually led him to face criminal charges,
0: marring the end of his difficult career. Punishing myself, but also in violent rages, um, retaliating and trying to hurt people just as much as I wanted to get hurt. It was a very interesting time mentally, and, and obviously I got put before a judge.
1: It got worse before it got better. Heath's marriage took a major hit and he turned to drinking to numb the pain. Eventually diagnosed with bipolar and ADHD, it took him years of work to get his life back on track.
0: Take away those highs that you get from playing AFL, the most addictive game in the world, and and fall into retirement with uh, no real education around how you feel and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's a recipe for disaster.
1: When he did, he had a new mission using everything he's been through to help others overcome their mental health struggles.
0: Having that lived experience carries a, a bloody lot of weight when you're talking um, about your home truths, uh, definitely. It
1: hasn't been pretty, but against the odds, he's turned his life into a success story more meaningful than he could have imagined. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. Tell us a bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up?
0: Yeah, um, I was from a, a split family. Uh, so mum and dad got divorced at the age of three, which was, you know, re- reasonably tough, uh, no doubt from what I can remember. Uh, my best mate was going through the same thing. So we sort of uh, connected um, through those those times. But uh, um, with mum, it was... a uh, you know, Monday to Friday, um, Catholic uh, primary school, a good shepherd in Mulgrave, in in uh, an eastern suburbs uh, suburbs in Melbourne, about thirty k's east. And then um, on the weekends, with that, it was it was a bit different. Uh, there was, uh, you know, we'd we'd go to the pub and or uh, some backyard parties, or uh, go to the footy, uh, local footy, or we'd go out to Waverley and watch Essendon. And I'd stand on a milk crate. Um, it was it was pretty different. It was pretty risky sort of behaviour. Uh, but then I'd, you know, go back to mums and do all the right things from Monday to Friday. And, uh, really though, um, really look forward to hanging out with dad. That sort of, uh, lifestyle suited me really well. And, um, it, it was linked into my personality and that was, um, always being a bit of a risk taker. So, and knocking about with, with the lads was, um, I learned a hell of a lot from a Street Smarts point of view. Um Was your dad was your dad a lot like that? Was he a lot like you? Yeah, he's a garbo and um you know, and, and still is today, fantastic guy, family man. Um and and the guys that he knocked around were uh, were were the common um, garbos that you get back in the day running behind the tr- you know playing footy, running behind the trucks uh, very early in the mornings uh, when we used to pick up the the little bins the little trash cans yeah. you know fit strong um, back in the day where you know there wasn't if you had tattoos it was a, a real statement um, yeah yeah and yeah that you were, you know you're a bit much dangerous. On. You're dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um, you rode you rode a Harley and
1: all yeah. of that. So, so the whole stereotype yeah. sort of, but just
0: like lads, yeah, just like lads, and you know they would uh, finish up at the at the uh, running on the trucks and then end up down the Bayesie Baiz, Hotel and uh, and drinking there, and 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 that was just the the sort of the way it was, and yeah. that was that was sort of part of my life uh, growing up. And not saying that was every day, but um, it was. That and then, but you liked that when you were there and in, in those environments
1: that suited you, and that sort of as a young person, the kind of bloke you, you figured you'd want her to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, and, and also um, going back to mum and not taking anything away from my mother it was good. She brought me back into line and, and yeah. really set, set boundaries for me, which I really needed because you know, at the end of the day, I was a, a, young, a young kid growing up with undiagnosed ADHD. Hundred percent, and um, back then it was just oh that that little kid's had too much red cordial and give him a swift kick up the bump. Yeah, um, but my mind even back then was you know racing, and I had huge amounts of energy. My um, focus and uh, uh, you know was was not great, and I was pretty ordinary at school. So, um, and you would have just yeah, been or- told
1: that, or, or the the um, consensus would have been that you were just you know sort of a bit
0: of a rat bag, and. A bit yeah. badly behaved at times, but obviously there was more going on. Yeah, there was, and unbeknownst to me, and you know, I only got diagnosed at the age of thirty, so that's only eleven years ago. Mm. And um, there was a lot of lot of water went under the bridge before that magic little pill um, gets taken. Is the, the NAB which is the um, over here today, was called the VSFL, which where all the boys out of Victoria get drafted, and. I was given an opportunity at the age of 15, which was really young, to play under-18s footy. That just continued on. uh, And we then got rezoned, which was really difficult. Played two years there, and then the Oakley Chargers got formed. So another two years at Oakley Chargers and and drafted at the age of 17, where um, one player per side at that stage, there was an under-17s draft, so one 17-year-old per AFL team. And I was fortunate enough to go to the Fremantle Footy Club. And that's young. That's real young, 17. Too, too young,
1: too yeah. young, mate. So um, what, did, what did that do to your, your head at the time, making it to the big league at that age?
0: Yeah, it, it probably fueled my personality even further. Uh, I had a fear of flying, so that was really tough uh, and, a, and a real fear, like a panic attack fear whilst on planes when going through turbulence. Uh, so that was—I was happy to be drafted. Really scared about knowing that I'd be in a plane heaps. Right. Definitely not willing to tell anyone that how scared I was about flying because that was just not—you know—you don't speak about that it sort didn't of stuff. Didn't fit your image, yeah. Yeah, true. Um, and and I had to learn the worst song in the AFL, the Fremantle Footy Club song. <laughs> it was shocking. I was probably probably more upset about that, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, And obviously went over there with a a good friend of mine, Jess Sinclair. So it was great to have two two young men, uh, Victorians, going going over there. Uh, And we billeted. We were billeted out in our first year by Spider Burton, the tallest player in the AFL at that stage, his mother, Teresa. So um, that was an experience in itself. And I do recall the first six weeks of trying to fit in to that AFL um, culture is it was extremely hot in WA. I wasn't used to that coming from Melbourne. Um, We weren't tapered into the pre-season as they are now as young guys watching their load and all of that. It was straight into mainstream training. And all I really did was eat, sleep, train, and at times cry into my pillow because I was so, so homesick. And that was sort of the the routine um, until you – Uh, given the opportunity um really early in my career to to play afl footy by round four in my first year
1: and so being thrust into that and then finding yourself actually on the field making an impact and very much a part of that world before you're even a legally a man when you were when you were really into it um you know, did you feel like you knew who you were or you, you hadn't even had time to
0: think about that sort of stuff? It was just you, the player? That's a great question. I reckon and on reflection is, is, is a good thing. I was leading two different lives. Honestly, I didn't really know who I was as a person at all. Uh, I had this perception of what an AFL, Australian footballer uh, technically is uh, or what my head told me it was meant to be. And it wasn't someone who was scared
1: of flying who cried into their pillow at night.
0: Spot on. So I was leading, even unbeknownst to myself, really, uh, a false persona. Double life. Uh, uh, yep, yeah, on the outside, um, trying to hold it all together. But even at a young age, was was very vulnerable on the inside, but wasn't addressing those vulnerabilities at all, just letting it... Letting it all roll, um, and you know, having fun, and, and um, the drinking culture within the AFL back in nineteen ninety seven is a, is a lot different than what you see today. Uh, we were still fit and and whatnot, but um, that was there. Just, it, unlike unlike it,
1: players not drinking during the season now, you know,
0: it was sort of whatever it, whatever yeah. goes. And you know the the drinking traditions, even um, I recall. Uh, you know, not made to, but in a way forced, if you want to call it that, by by older players. You know, they pass you the beer bong and uh, you're a new player and it's your job and duty, duty to drink as many cans out of that beer bong until you vomit into a bit.
1: Yeah. And were you yeah. well accustomed to that by that point, having grown up as a lad? or was it still yes. was it still extreme even for you because you're still you're you're a young kid and these guys are grown men did you feel very much like you were the kid with something to prove
0: definitely but i knew in the back of my head again that through my upbringing i was drinking you know i drank since the age of 13 not not every weekend or anything like that but there were i was first drunk at the age of 13 but it was normal to you it was it was pretty normal. So, and I'd had a little bit of practice on the beer pong um, <laughs> beforehand, and uh, I knew that I could sort of fit into this culture. And it showed. Yeah, and I and I <laughs> and, and I, I, I down them, and I vomited. And um, but I, you know, you get cheered off, and and that's that was the way. In a, in a weird, weird twist, um, when I became a leader of the footy club. I continued those old school stupid traditions, and um, you know, eventually, um, through better leadership than what I was able to provide, you know, the Matthew Pavlics and and those young kids coming through just sort of stopped it. Because you were you, know. you were
1: conditioned on your way that that was appropriate, that that's that's what you should be doing and what you should be encouraging the young players to do, because that's the treatment you got.
0: So you just thought yep, that was the sort was of trying. tradition. Yeah, tradition, but I, I was, you know, again, reflection, I was, I was shitty at the fact that maybe I could have changed the cycle and, and I, I didn't. Um, and I, I probably wouldn't have because it was enjoyable, you know. You would, you would play and uh, back then Fremantle were pretty ordinary so you, we'd often lose and um, our major sponsor at that stage was the Left Bank Hotel. So, again, that two-team town mentality, you, you're starting off as a young kid You've got the fame, you've got the chicks, um, you've got the money and money was was huge back then. I'd never seen anything like it before. And then you got so
1: much all at once, totally unprepared all, to
0: handle it. All at once and, and I'm happy to say this because I say often is that I earn $177 a week as a carpenter in Melbourne, uh, apprentice carpenter with my stepdad, and 12 months after getting drafted I had $114,000. That's 1997. So... That's a huge amount of money back then to have totally accessible to me. Mm. Uh, again, with my personality, it was just—I remember coming back for the first time back to Melbourne to my mates. I had a license because I got it at, at 17 over in WA, and they were still waiting for theirs. And I, through a, a six-week period of going pretty hard over in Melbourne, um, I shouted and blew my for my mates five grand. Yeah. Just, just because I could just because I wanted to I wanted them to have fun with me yeah I wanted I wanted them to get a feel for it and and that was just the way it was and I
1: guess you were pretty confident it was going to last, which it did you, you know you had a, you had a long career although it was tough but um, yep yeah I, I, I can't quite imagine what that's like to be that young and then sort of be given the keys to the city um, mm. essentially. Um, and then have all those influences around you. How did it affect your actual performance? Like, were you still playing well when you were partying? Yeah.
0: And look, I, I want to put it out there that I was, my drug of choice was alcohol. I wasn't, um, and a lot of people find that hard to believe. Was there much of a make, drug
1: culture when you were in the league
0: when you started? Not. I first saw drugs in, so I first saw harder street drugs in 2000. Yeah, um, and and prior to that was the occasional joint, maybe, um, and then obviously it just it's progressed to maybe what you see today with I suppose the drug of choice being cocaine. I yep. suppose, um, but it's very so, different to when you were you were playing. Yep, yeah, and I was never one to uh dabble off into those harder street drugs at all. Um, a, a VB stubby was my my drink of choice and 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 that's the way it sort of rolled and, and that was bad enough for me in the end um, toward later on towards retirement. But But you were still playing good footy even though you were on yeah, the Yeah look it was and, and people, you know, often ask, is it that Ben Cousins mentality? Um, ben was uh, such a such a better player than I was and I used to have to play on him a lot and and um yeah I admire his on-field performance. And um, probably playing my best sort of footy, you know, the club were probably well aware that I would be at Moondine Joe's uh, hotel in, in Fremantle on Mondays and uh, we'd have Tuesday off. And I'd, I'd sort of, depending on performance and how I was feeling, I'd go pretty hard um, on that Monday. Yeah. But always, every single Tuesday, absolutely smash myself in the gym. So as a... It was like a risk and trying reward to justify thing. it. And even today, I, I use the seesaw. Okay, so if I'm overdoing it and not getting enough sleep, well, something's got to give. Got to bring the seesaw yeah, got back. To balance you know, got it to out. Eat, eat better or what? It yeah. Yeah. So that's just that that that's a real common or an easy philosophy for me is if the seesaw is one side, I'm I'm at risk of um, pretty ordinary behaviour.
1: How did you view yourself at that time? Uh, when you were in the league and you know you're a bit of a star and had all this cash and uh, effectively living the dream,
0: how did you actually see yourself and did you like yourself? Yeah, another ripping question. Um, I was living in two things. I call it the AFL bubble and protected by um, the brand. And and not so much now. I mean, if you do something, you you you're very much scrutinised. But yeah. back then, I, I felt as though um, society was down here, the general population, and I was up here in this in this bubble, yep. living different different rules in a bipolar bubble. Mm. And for those people that understand bipolar, uh, for many, many years, I thought you guys had the problem, the world, and I was bulletproof. And especially when you're high on um, or hypermanic or, or you're in a manic episode. You're on, that um, you're on the upswing. You're on the upswing. I try to explain it to people, playing footy nearly every single weekend, I was hypermanic and, and that was fueling, um, my, it was my natural medication. Mm. So naturally take away those highs that you get from playing AFL, the most addictive game in the world, and... and fall into retirement with uh, no real education around how you feel and all that sort of stuff, um, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So So it's um,
1: similar in some ways to leaving the military, although different, but yet you've always had that structure and you've always had that
0: extreme stimulus and then you have that pulled out out from under you. Spot on. spoken to many people returning um, from uh, obviously Afghanistan and whatnot and – their life and death where we're just footballers and they talk about bullets going over their heads and being there with their mates and they're in the trenches and the camaraderie and all of that. And then coming back to normal society, no more bullets, no more. So what what have they what's their sort of high? Is it having a fight in a pub or mm. yeah it, it And you're looking makes for sense. something to fill that
1: hole because you can't just have nothing. So you you, you definitely experienced that.
0: Yeah, with ADHD too, um, I'm continually chasing stimulation. So I might be transfixed on the gym, um, and I've got to use the gym to to release that energy every day. Yeah, um, I've got to get a really good night's sleep because if I don't sleep, it's hard for people to get understand. But I get more energy the next day if I don't sleep. So I've got to monitor my sleep mm. um all of these things i've picked up on now but essentially that the whole afl structure playing with a group of men uh, fighting it out partying with them afterwards uh was just the perfect fit for the way i was wired here yeah sort of the perfect storm yep 100 percent.
1: and on reflection when you look at the expanse of your career do you see where those underlying mel- mental health conditions were affecting you and pushing you to behave in a certain way? Like what stands
0: out in that in that uh, way? Yeah, um, for six years, no, nah, for more, for for my whole career, for twelve years, but in particular for a block of six, um, pre-performance anxiety and even anxiety today. Like I woke up today. Um, no real sleep because we've just moved into a new home. So I was, I was up late. Um, the kids woke up at the normal time and and I knew that I was going to have energy today and that can worry me as well. So anxiety kicked in. Back in the day, I'd try and work out why anxiety was around and I don't anymore. I just say I accept that it's there. Yep. And I know that with anxiety, it will pass and i can put measures in place to make it pass a bit quicker through education so and breathing techniques and all of that so but it's good to talk about like even today that i've just openly said on an open forum that this You know, rough looking sort of bloke that hasn't had a shave for a while (laughs) is uh, is woken up with um, anxiety, and I'm cool with that. So, um, but pre performance anxiety was very different and at times quite crippling. And I would, I was very structured by time, like that obsessive compulsive sort of nature, as a lot of players are. And I would be unfortunately sitting on the toilet before games, every single game, dry reaching. Um, out of control diarrhea heart palpitations um, urinating every 30 to 40 seconds there's just a hell of a lot of things going on i then and just out of control sweat um, when i was at st kilda they they came up with a, a an idea that to put me on oxy, an oxygen mask three minutes before running out no no proven evidence that that worked but that placebo I reckon calm me down uh-huh. and can you imagine in front of your mates uh, Robert Harvey and Aaron Hamill and Fraser Garrick are walking into the medical room they're and like he's, what the fuck here's like, he, Darth Vader what? <laughs> what but I tell you what <laughs> if you had a good game the next game if you would be, be on, on it oxygen, <laughs> <laughs> they'd be like what? oh, what's in that what's oxygen <laughs> in? Yeah, yeah yeah oh classic but look we tried everything and um it, nothing would really work. Were you seeing sometime. a
1: psychologist? Did you have sports psychs back then?
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, with breathing. Te- just It just was was nearly a panic attack every game. Mm. And the boys would remember I was always dry reaching. Um, going up the race, I'd be keeling over and then I would urinate all the time out on the ground with a coin toss. Um, it was just so set to routine. Um and then sometimes depending on performance at halftime, uh, it, would, it, it would come back. And, and in a way, this might sound a bit funny, if you were having a killer game uh, and, and you're arguably in the top three, I'd come in and have huge amounts of anxiety because I knew I had to continue that performance uh-huh. where if I was playing shit there was a huge room for improvement uh uh-huh, right so the anxiety would be less
1: yeah but when you were get, when you were playing really well you you felt like the eyes and the intention was on you
0: yeah a lot more and i was i, I hated halftime i i wish we could just keep playing i hated the breaks because that meant you had meant, to
1: stop i think
0: yeah yeah think about performance think about um Am I doing the right role for the team? All of that stuff. And I really struggled to retain information by the coaches because this thing was going so fast. Yeah. So I was just more of a go out and play and, and just do your thing and hope for the best. That being the case, did you still
1: love the game, given that it was making you freak out that much? Wow.
0: I hated the game. Um, loved it for maybe the first five years of my career and then, geez, it became a, um, it was a fight. I was having a fight with it every week. Sometimes you were massively on massive highs and it was the best ever. But ultimately I remember talking to teammates that were in a similar situation to me mentally and also uh, big risk takers off the field and quite big personalities and, um, it's funny who you attract when you're in that mindset mm. and you were. I attracted similar like-minded blokes and we were quite poisonous.
1: Well, you were to, enabling each other to distract each other
0: from the reality yeah. that was really tough to deal with. Spot on. And I think when you're in, I heard someone talking about a previous AFL coach about the victim's corner and when things aren't going well and and you're in shit form, you you go in the victim's corner and you try and recruit other victims to you. And that's essentially what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. I was on a recruiting drive trying to get negative people to agree with the way I was feeling about the game. And I did. I recruited three or four and we were the big drinkers. We were, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny how toxic we were for each other. Well, also um, it's,
1: it's the case that, oh, well, if my teammates are doing it, whether I'm
0: making them do it or not, then it, it's all right. Yeah, yeah, in a way. And, and you would sort of never have those conversations with these, these guys. Um, but you knew wholeheartedly that if you came together as a group, uh, you were ultimately going to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, by the, the the law of the land of what an AFL footballer should be doing, when those those groups came together, those boundaries were broken every time. Yeah, and you felt like
1: felt like you were really fitting that stereotype at the time. Yeah, yeah.
0: And then I reckon the next day though, um, the anxiety would kick in because one, you've you've let your teammates down by being on the booze and out late. Uh, you're feeling shit. You're more anxious because you've drank too much, and yep. you. The only way I sort of to help overcome it was to try and train as hard as you could but I think funnily enough, I sort of was able to get away with it because of my energy levels. Um, I was always able to push through that hangover feeling um, where maybe the other guys that I was recruiting, they might have taken a toll on them a little bit more. Would you get that energy? Would you get that mania after not sleeping much and and drinking a lot? It happened more later on in my career when we were uh, first medicated and I was on, probably for two years, I was on the wrong medication. It was enhancing my undiagnosed bipolar. Bipolar is really hard to diagnose um, and we were trying to get there but it takes time, Um, it really does. And you're playing with different pills and you're trying to play footy and you're It was really hard. Sometimes I'd go out on the footy field with a new medication feeling extremely foggy in the head or in a depressive episode and dragging your feet through two hours of AFL because your meds or you're coming off your medication and you're going through withdrawals, which is like having the flu. Did your teammates know that you were on meds and and did you feel a level Mm -hmm. of shame about it all? I was quite happy. And and quite relieved, even when doing the Beyond Blue survey way back when, and ticking a few boxes for depression, uh, I thought, no, nah, there's a reason here. I'm I'm happy with that, and I'm quite excited uh, taking uh, medication to to overcome that. It, it worked to a certain extent, but these huge highs and and full body buzzes for for days. Uh, was very much linked into wrong meds and also shit going on in my life but the medication was was making some was making me go pretty wild and then of course mixing that with
1: alcohol can be a disaster
0: too Lo- loaded gun yeah. ridiculous when yeah, so when did we,
1: you really start when did you really start to struggle with your mental health and it started
0: to fall apart yep yeah. um 2008 was retirement three three big things sort of Three things happened. I was going through a massive relationship breakdown and kids involved and all of that. Um, The last five weeks of my career, I was homeless, living out of the back of my car, playing AFL footy uh, with no money, all my clothes in the back of the Toyota Prado with my dog. And um, but lo and behold, in a twist, the weirdest part is I was in career best form. Mm. And that's just bizarre to even get your head around. What do you put that down
1: Um, to? You had nothing else to focus on at that time.
0: Yeah, maybe. Do you know what? Maybe um, the anxiety. I might just be. Oh, I don't give a fuck. I'm just. Yeah. I'm just rolling with this. I even remember uh, drinking uh, on a. We had a twilight game against Essendon, and um, on the Saturday, and I reckon I dragged six stubbies on Friday night, which I've never ever done. Yes, I was a big drinker, but uh, not much before games, mm. if any. So yeah. I really remember drinking those six beers, waking up a you know a bit hazy, uh, knowing anxiety from knowing that I've done the wrong thing. Yeah, and just ha- just had a rip snorter, mm. just just leather poisoning. It was, and then you you trick yourself that that's this is this is all right. Did you do it again? Yeah, yeah, of course. Those those five weeks were. Career best form, massive risk-taking, nightclubs, relationship was gone. I was, I was getting a divorce and there was just a, I don't care. Um, I'm going to have as much fun as I possibly can. Mm. And footy was third on the list, um, drinking, girls and footy. Yeah. Where did that lead you? <laughs> <laughs> it, it led me to retirement. So those three things, obviously, yeah, relationship breakdown, retirement, and my body was gone. I had three operations in three weeks. And this might sound a bit bit weird, but because of my mindset and the mania, uh, I was becoming quite addicted to the feeling of getting put under. Uh, and the the painkillers and the seditation, uh, sedative drugs that they were prescribing was making me more normal. And just being able to deal with day to day life, so that was interesting. Getting over hernia, shoulder rico, um, and my hips got like, done. Op- opioids. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Because so, you couldn't
1: um, you couldn't get into that state without that.
0: No, yeah. not at all. I wasn't saying I was not necessarily addicted to the painkillers afterwards, but addicted to the feeling of the general anaesthetic, and mm. that. Total release of not having to think anymore, which leads us into those when things really did get um, bad and spiraling out of control. Um, Wouldn't those suicidal sort of thoughts and tendencies were starting to play in my mind a little bit? Not didn't have a plan, didn't have an attempt, but it was just in the back of the head thinking about what it felt like when I was going under in Mm. those operations. Mm. And that was after you'd retired? Yeah. So 2008, retired. I was working at Channel 7 as a sports reporter for 10 hours a week, so not much commitment, and getting paid 50K a year to do that. So still reasonable money just to tick them over. Mm. Um, Was buying and selling um, commercial property uh, as a as a director of of a company, but didn't have to put any collateral behind. It was just um, doing big deals, and again, think about what we've just spoken about with personality and chasing stimulus. Was I was doing deals like twelve million bucks? Not my money, not not a, But imagine the thrill of that over long lunches at the Raffles Hotel down in three bottles of Savion Blanc Cloudy Bay and and securing a twelve million dollar deal. Not something was just,
1: not something that someone in your frame of mind needed to be was doing just at that
0: time. Ridiculous. And look, um, the guys that I was in business with had just sold their business and they were they were worth a lot of money and fantastic guys. And um Again, just all fueled each other. Um, they were a lot older than me, and um, I just felt safe. It was uh, that time just suited me, and and obviously, you know, some run-ins with the law, some drink-driving charges, some assaults, and essentially um, four big incidents in in a short amount of time. Uh, Channel Seven gave me the sack, which was fair enough. And the boys that I was uh, in business with also striked me off the directorship of, of the commercial property buying. So I was on my ass, uh, broke, and uh, it was my fault. So there was no pointing fingers. I'm, I'm sad. And every time I got in the shit with the law, I'd put my hand up and say I was guilty. I'd just take it on the chin. And I saw a lot of, a lot of the inside of a courtroom in 2008, 9, 10, and 11. Throughout
1: that, were you operating still with that mindset of, you know, I don't give a
0: fuck? Yep. Yeah. Um, world's got the problem. Uh, went on a footy trip at the end of 08 and just seri- annihilated myself. Um, took a whole lot of money over and, um, you know, the, the risky behavior that I engaged in over there. I was on a different time clock to the 35 of me mates at Frio. I would be roaming the streets uh, to wee hours of the morning, on my own, um, and I'd sleep during the day, and it was just, it was just bizarre. Were but you, I mean,
1: were you sort of punishing yourself or looking for trouble, like looking to really implode because you didn't like yourself?
0: Uh, yep. yep. all of that, um, and also wanted to put myself, I believe, in situations of uh, going back to those suicidal tendencies. And I've had a lot of therapy around this, identifying it, um, putting myself into a situation where possibly I would get shot, beaten up to the point of no return. Yeah. And that was, that was my way of going down that path. Um, yeah, absolutely, I got beaten up many times and, and hurt and, and all of that, but not to that extent. But you were um, inviting it because you were, I was you were it, punishing obviously. yourself punishing myself but also in violent rages, um, retaliating and trying to hurt people just as much as I wanted to get hurt. Mm. It was a very interesting time mentally and, mm. and obviously I got put before a judge, um, Judge Stephen Heath, Chief Magistrate of, of Perth, and um, he was, I believe, reasonably soft on me. He could have been a lot harder. But there was a lot of things put in place that I had to achieve uh, around learning about alcohol, um, engaging myself in um, uh, as an outpatient uh, at the Leaderville Clinic, which was pretty scary. So I'd go through the back door, um, see my doctors, do my therapy, some group sessions and stuff, which was fairly hectic with ice addicts. And, you know, um, my I was just just trying to recover from alcohol and that was bad enough. Mm. um and go down that process of trying to work out what the bloody hell was going on with this bipolar. So uh, we did get correct diagnosis of bipolar through that, that whole scenario, but we got again wrong medication to deal with bipolar. So I was on a roller coaster ride for another couple of years to get one ADHD medication and correct diagnosis for ADHD. And also, correct medication for bipolar too.
1: And you only narrowly avoided going
0: to jail. That, in my opinion, uh, spent a few times in East Perth lockup, uh, and and oh, this felt at ease in there on my own in that cell away from public. And and it was time for me just to I used to wear a black jacket with a hoodie. And I remember just putting the hoodie on and just sitting in the corner. And I remember vividly looking down at the East Perth floor at the lockup, and there was a, a bit of tomato there. Like, how the hell do you remember that? A blind off my guts. Like, I mean, hammered. They said, Do you, do you need a lift home? And this is how intoxicated. Um, I said, No, no, I'll walk. I know where I am, East Perth, Bridge is over there. Took a wrong turn and ended up lost. Had to get a cab back home, and I was like 25 minutes the wrong way. Um on that night, so I used to come home to um, asher my partner and, and now wife and just show her the little the green slip and she knew where I was had been and that was you know a place where I felt safe. Mm. so uh, but me in jail, no way, like didn't want to go there, scared all of that stuff, but um was was pretty, pretty close, very, very close. And your wife was really there for you throughout that rock bottom 100 um was very lucky a lot of people that have these similar stories um don't have that support and i was one of the lucky ones that did i don't know how uh asha continued on um that's for sure um but i think you know we we helped each other in some ways Uh, i know it might be hard to get your head around that as well but um I think a lot of the things that maybe Asha hadn't um, seen or, or been accustomed to in her life, um, I was showing her another way of life, if you know what I mean, that risky behavior, mm. which also probably has uh, helped her in her sort of work and, and, and dealing with people and stuff like that. So, and I've learned how to be a lot more passive and, uh, um, Going back and trying to study and, and stuff like that. So, and that I wouldn't have been able to do that without Asha. That's nice. What steps did you take to
1: start to pull yourself back up and come out of this? Yeah,
0: look, only burst my bipolar um, above the law bubble, um, probably in therapy. So I was still hanging on to my life, uh, even after the judge. Uh, let me off to a certain extent, and I was still, you know, I'll be right. Um, so it took a little while, still, but once the bubble popped and the outpour of emotion and and um, starting to write a book was massive. You mean um, letting go of that that persona and that front yeah, that you've been holding the, up? Just the front, just the the lies, the living the second life. Um, the, the perception of, of what I had to be like in public compared to the person behind the four walls of my home, mm. people just would not believe the, the difference. And um, there was. There was a massive difference. And um, getting the book going years ago and uh, admittedly when um, I had a ghost writer and um, she would come in and, and put the the video or the, the tape on the um on the kitchen bench and I'd have no shirt on, me footy shorts on, and I'd be drinking um, long neck stubbies. And uh, that's how the book started. And it was just this, it was therapy. It was, and I, I wasn't paying for it. And um, the book started in a, a really erratic fashion. And then three years later, it sort of came together to be uh, off the cuff a bit out there Hollywood sort of stories, which that's what happens with people that uh, don't get help early enough. Um, it came together as a, a bit of a, a mental health book, which I'm pretty proud of. Did you write a lot of it in the end? It's all my all my words, um, but I'm not academic enough to actually put pen to paper or type. Mm. Uh, I started, I tried, but it was just all over the shop. And there are a lot of contradictions within the book to how I was mentally at the beginning to I suppose a book goes from wild to then quite stable and correct medication and all of that. Yes, you had that narrative arc.
1: And I was just about to ask that, who were you at the end of the book by
0: the time it was written? Yes. I was still finding my path, there's no doubt, and I'm still on my mental health journey now. As I said before, woke up with anxiety today, so what? But um, I will always continue to be um, in my mental health journey and learning from people like yourself, you you know, like you really know your stuff. And and you just, I love listening to people and, and learning from their own stories because storytelling for me and with my job um, getting up in front of people when we're not in COVID and um, being able to share and show your vulnerabilities and talk openly and passionately um, as we've done today. Once men feel comfortable in this forum, we'll, we'll talk and tell people how we feel. Um, so yeah, it's it, storytelling is is massive and I think in this forum like today. It, um, it's really powerful for men and, and we should be encouraged to do it.
1: Absolutely. And on your own healing journey, what has it done for you getting up and, and delivering that message and seeing the impact that it makes on other people?
0: How has that helped you heal? I, I often get asked this and I say it, it sounds quite selfish, but the more that I do um, publicly and on the road the better I feel mentally for myself um, because I feel like I'm helping people. And through this COVID process, you know, the amount of people that I've had to refer in Melbourne to um, different doctors and whatnot has been unprecedented. Um, But again, if I'm feeling down and I'm helping someone else, it's naturally making me feel better.
1: Mm. Absolutely, man. And what have you learned through all this about yourself?
0: Uh, One, that I'm definitely not bulletproof and I I could never have done this on my own, Uh, never. Um, I've learnt that I can be patient, that I can learn academically, uh, which I was really apprehensive and didn't back myself in in that area. Uh, I've learnt that you can be a bit of a trailblazer and and you know back 11 years ago talking about mental health there wasn't too many of us so there was probably Wayne Swaths and and me and and now have a look at how many people just put their hand up and get out there and it's more come a long in. way it's come a long way and and it needed to I can remember having four or five people to a presentation um and now at times I can have a 1,000 people or online you might have 10,000 hits in wow. 24 hours or yeah. it's just, but again, I've also learned to massively show your vulnerabilities in public and in forums when you feel them down and um, because it it instantly clicks me into if I'm preaching this, how, how am I going? yeah how am i feeling you've
1: got to be it as well you've got to embody it and there can be that where you you surround yourself you're surrounded with it in your life and preaching and it, it's your job and you're all about it um and you've got to actually practice what you preach and, and remember to check in with yourself because uh when you're focusing on others a lot of the time and and how are they going and that's that's very important but you can can lose sight of the fact that you have to continually put effort and attention into making sure that you're okay and getting enough sleep mm. and doing all the right things and that there is pressure on all of us to keep that stuff up and do the right stuff to keep our mental health in check because it, unfortunately, even for those who haven't been diagnosed with a mental illness at some point in their life, there's no uh, oh, I've, I've ticked the box so I'm all good forever. You know, you have you yeah, have to keep yeah. it up. You have to keep
0: managing yourself. Big time. Big time, and I'll get reviewed with my medication twice a year, and sometimes it goes up, and whatever, that's that's okay. Um, or another medication will be prescribed, or um, but it's not all about the meds. It's about, as you just said, there's a whole list of things that I have to do each day to to make sure that this is okay. I think we we often you know we lift weights and we you know, look in the mirror and we're, we're we're looking okay and everything's going all right. Um, we focus too much on our physical health and probably not enough on our mental health. And I've got to train harder on my mental health than I ever had to do a full pre-season of AFL footy. Mm. Um, and I know that now. So the balance has sort of swapped. I, I concentrate on getting this right, which will then allow me to train hard. Um, and I do. I still still train and
1: still love it. What do you think of the man you are now compared to who you were
0: and how different that is? Look, I I still have demons. I still question myself. Uh, I still question behaviour at times, Um, not in public or uh, just sometimes I might, you know, it might be road rage and I might get upset and say the wrong thing in the car in front of the kids. And that little trigger eight hours later will be in my head that, I've done the wrong thing and I'm going to go back to what it was like and I never want to go back there. But ultimately, um, I think think I'm all right. I think I'm okay and and, um, I know that I'll always continue to strive to be better and um, whether that can bring on anxiety, it, it can, but I just want to learn and continue to learn from people and that's that's my motto and it strikes me that you're very honest with yourself now
1: whereas you used to be completely oh. dishonest with yourself yeah.
0: and it's not and about
1: yeah. becoming it perfect and that'll never happen and nor do we need it to but it's like you've said it's it's waking up and realizing that yes you are feeling anxious and that that's okay that's that's yeah. that's happening um there's certain things you can do to improve that but just knowing that that's all right and letting yourself off the hook and doing what needs to be done to bring yourself back up to where you want to be. And that's that's what's important and that's the message that we're trying to get across to people. It's not that you should be perfect and that you shouldn't have problems. It's that you can accept that and you can do what needs to be done to to try and make yourself as best as you can be. You nailed it, mate, 100%. The last thing I'm really interested in is if you could be remembered as – an AFL veteran with a spotless record who never put a foot wrong, would you take that or would you take the
0: reality? Uh, I would never, ever change anything apart from um, physically and mentally hurting people um, and and doing the wrong thing with the law to a certain extent. But everything else, no way, not changing because – uh, I wouldn't be in this position to be able to sit and talk to you or, um, you know, have my business where you go out and you, you, you talk and you help people. Um, as I said, I'm fortunate enough to be able to storytell and um, share your experience and, and do a little bit of education around train yourself up in mental health first aid and suicide assist and you go to schools and you, you become a professional in the field. But uh, it all comes back to that personal experience of mental health. And I, I think um, having that lived experience carries a, a bloody lot of weight when you're talking um, about your home truths, uh, definitely. So, And isn't yeah. it funny that living through all that
1: allows you to now live such a meaningful life in terms of your work? Yep,
0: I've got a great job. Look, I'm a stay-at-home dad of four kids and um, obviously don't travel – Don't travel at all at the moment, living in Melbourne, but um, don't travel anywhere near as much, but still uh, very active in the space and um, love my job. Uh, Love being a stay-at-home dad, yet very, very challenging. And um, the first eight months of being a stay-at-home dad, I was tested immensely uh, with my mental health um, because I didn't think I was providing. And the other thing in Melbourne with lockdown one of COVID, I was challenged massively um, with mental health uh, because I was taken away from routine so the lockdown too I've been been really good because I've got used to it I'm in routine and I'm somewhat anxious coming out of lockdown too what does that mean for me so always always you never know you never know how you're feeling and uh, but what of- you
1: are accruing is, a a cache of evidence of when things have changed and it's been uncomfortable, but you've adapted and you've made it work. And the more you build that up, the more faith you have that you'll be able to adapt to whatever comes next. Cause we know that change is the only constant. It's going to keep coming.
0: Bloody oath. Yeah. And a, a little bit better with that these days, uh, was definitely hated change, but, um, you know, new house, um, A big—that's a big change for me. And um, as I look around, you know, there's boxes and clutter everywhere, which I hate. And uh, but good night's sleep tonight, and uh, feed up, and we'll we'll have a crack again tomorrow. And it ain't half bad. No, it's not. No, we're uh, we're very lucky. Um, We've got jobs, and uh, you know, we haven't been hit smashed by COVID, and everything's pretty much normal here.
1: Well, it's been really good to be able to hear from you like this, man. I really appreciate having your time, and you know, you're, you're such a deep-thinking, reflective individual. Now, who I, I can totally have a picture in my mind of of who you used to be, but you're obviously living your truth now and uh, being so authentic. And you've reached this point in your life where you can have that sort of impact on the next generation and and people your age and. That that's almost seems like it, it was meant to be. I don't personally believe yeah. in that, but um yeah, I think who you are now is a, a very important individual for us to have around and and someone that others who've been involved in, in AFL and high level sport and, and just generally can look up to and, and, and see a bit of themselves in and, and hopefully take better care of themselves. So thank you for what you do and for who you are and it's it's been a, a real honour to get to have this chat with you, man.
0: No, nah, absolute pleasure. Happy to help out at any time. And if anyone that's listening um, wants to contact me um, and I'm I'm here to help anybody that's listening, so just jump on, just Google my name. It's easy to, to get in contact. And so if you want to have a chat at any stage, just uh, look me up.
1: You're a legend, Heath. You better get back to uh, those four kids, I reckon, mate. Yep, yep. Make sure you're and putting so, in. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I am. If you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. You can follow Youngblood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and visit our website youngbloodmedia.com.au to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. A huge thank you to our local business supporters who've joined our mission to change the lives of young men for the better and help make this possible. We're all in it together.
0: This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.